The talk is about wise surrender and compassionate surrender. Most of us are aware of the preciousness of human birth. Sometimes on a retreat, it can be hard to remember how precious the conditions are uh, for being here on retreat. Now the the ups and downs on a long retreat can become um, more wild and unfathomable. Uh, So where we are right now in the retreat is a kind of unfathomable place in practice where if we try to figure it out, um, it's really a waste of your time to try to figure out where you are. Uh, You know, it's like we're 20,000 leagues under the sea exploring, deeply exploring what it is to be human. Uh, so there's that preciousness. It's, it's to understand the preciousness of human birth in relationship to developing wisdom and compassion, but also, again, the rarity of the conditions that will come together in a lifetime for any human being to be this protected so that we can do this practice. And then to get a sense of what it's taken to protect these teachings for so long. You know, there's that ancient stream of transmission that I think we come to uh, respect more and more as we practice. Just a sense of what has it taken to keep these teachings alive. So there's the preciousness of the silence itself. If we just came in here for three months or six weeks uh, and did nothing but be here in the silence, a great transformation would happen because we would see so much about ourselves, because there would be so little distraction. Uh, So however you see yourself here, I think it can be helpful at this point in the retreat to Uh, remember that it's such a gift to be here uh, and to know that the suffering that we go through here is the suffering that ends suffering. And it's such a, a worthwhile thing to do. Mindfulness of our moment to moment experience, uh, enables us to move from the more, uh, conceptual or surface layer of reality Uh, to a a deeper uh, perspective, which is non-conceptual. The understanding that can occur from doing this is understanding change, understanding anicca, understanding dukkha. Part of understanding dukkha relies on our understanding of impermanence. It's because of change that we start to get in touch with the intense unbearability of existence itself. And this, this perspective of dukkha can be incredibly poignant at times during the retreat, uh, our understanding of what it is to take birth here, uh, and just knowing that anything can happen. And then the third characteristic of existence, anatta, starting to get that sense that there really is 
nothing to hold on to. Uh, the more we understand the insubstantialness of experience itself, uh, we don't have to let anything go because we, <laughs> it's voluntary. We see so clearly. There's no need to make an effort to let a thought go. We just see it for what it is. It's just a thought. There's no reason to get rid of it. Um, it just comes and goes by itself. It's so insubstantial. Part of the practice is coming to understand how deeply connected we are existentially with all beings that take birth here. The more we understand dukkha, the more we understand that all beings that take birth here experience dukkha. And often on retreat, hopefully, if we just look around and just imagine what goes on in our own minds and multiply it by a hundred in this room, you know, just, just to imagine what that would sound like. You know, and I think of all of us as fellow sufferers. You know, there's that way in which there's that uh, solidarity with each other and knowing that we're all attempting this great journey of developing wisdom and compassion um, with, with difficult odds. Probably not as difficult as winning the lottery, but it's, it's uh, the statistically just to know, you know, that the way in which um, the Buddha emphasized this preciousness of human birth as, as a a layer of reality of existence itself, that we can do this. We can get liberated. So part of the practice is, is developing this compassion for ourselves in the, in the midst of dukkha, and compassion for all beings, and also developing wisdom. We develop a deep care for ourselves and others, caring about the pain, and also a commitment to wisdom, to see things just as they are. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda that really, to me, uh, captures a sense of what we're up against as mortals. And he wrote this right before he died. We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and to say goodbye. Do we really get the sense as mortals that it's our destiny as mortals to be able to love and to say goodbye. Now, this is so much the practice in that simplicity. If we can equally love the practice as a form of developing this wisdom and compassion, we'll see that we develop this understanding of interconnectedness with all beings, as well as seeing clearly that nothing's worth being attached to. What a paradox. 
And what a great journey, but also what a paradox to hold these both. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And how do we do this? You know, how do we surrender with wisdom to this duty to love and to say goodbye? One of my first uh, Vipassana teachers uh, told a story in one of the first talks I ever heard. And he told a story of um, coming back from Asia as a monk, and he'd been a monk for a long time. Uh, And he was invited to a hospital in New York City where a woman had been in an iron lung for over 20 years. Sometimes I think it takes being on a long retreat to just imagine what that would be like, you know, to be in a hospital, in a room, in an iron lung for over 20 years. What kind of uh, surrender that would take. So this monk was invited to, I think, give her some solace or some teachings. But when he walked into the room and had a sense of what she had been up against, he just broke down and cried and asked, well, how, how could you do this? How could you stand this for so long? And she said that sometimes in the summer, sometimes a nurse would come in the room, and sometimes a nurse would open a window. And if there was a breeze that day, the breeze would come through the window and touch her cheek. And when the wind or breeze would touch her cheek, it would tell her all she needed to know. And to me, that's the uh, exquisite uh, surrender that we're all attempting to do moment by moment. You know, that exquisite ability to just receive a moment. And whether we call that aiming or connecting or receiving and sustaining the attention, it's the ability to just totally let go and be here fully, to love and then to say goodbye. Because if we don't say goodbye, we never get there for the next moment. We've been attached to that moment of the wind touching our cheek, and it really won't be able to tell us all we need to know, because we'll get attached. This requires an ability to be vulnerable and just to surrender to life as it is. And what can be, I think, misleading for us, and when we talk about going deep in practice, it's really important to remember that it's uh, deep in practice means that we allow whatever is on the surface, moment to moment, to touch us that deeply. You know, so if we hear the sound of the heat now in this room, if we can really be there that fully and let go of the past and future and surrender, that sound, whether it's silent in here or the sound of the heat, will tell us all we need to know. You know, so it doesn't mean that we have to dig 
somehow to some other experience other than what's happening. Uh, that gets incredibly misleading for us. So it really is just a moment of really receiving the breath or really receiving a sound or seeing a thought clearly. It's that light. It's that ordinary. It's also important for us to know that being able to receive life fully includes the range of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So that that experience, say, of the wind touching our cheek is just as important as a moment when we brush our teeth. It's, it's that range of the full moon to the new moon, that light and darkness or rain or wind, cold or warmth. It's whether we're doing the dear friend or the difficult person. It's really allowing that whole range of our mortal experience or existential experience to touch us so deeply that we develop more and more wisdom and compassion. This kind of surrender is like a deep listening, and it's the opposite of dominance and the opposite of control. Stephen has mentioned that we've been helping a family nearby that we're very close to, where uh, the dad has lymphoma. And several times I've gone to take uh, one of the daughters to a soccer game in Amherst. Uh, Soccer mom, they call me when they see me (laughs) coming. And there was a friend of mine, actually, that I hardly ever see that uh, I didn't know his daughter went to the the same soccer team, was in the same school as this, this girl. Uh, And he saw me there a few weeks ago. Most of my friends in Western Mass, Massachusetts, just know that I get totally involved here and hardly ever see me when I'm teaching here. So he saw me, and he couldn't believe it was me at the soccer game for about half the, the game, and then finally came up to me and said, what are you doing here? You know, it was just so odd for me to be showing up at this situation. Uh, and I, I'm not used to going to soccer games, really. It was my first soccer game that, uh, <laughs> that day. Uh, <laughs> but I did play field hockey and basketball and softball in high school. So I started noticing how the coach was with these girls and boys. There's two boys on the team and the rest are girls. He is the kindest, kindest coach I've ever seen. It was like I thought I was on another planet because the coaches I had were all into winning, you know. They were all into competition and, you know, if you didn't win, we were failures. And our best usually was never good enough. Uh, We were just pushed and pushed and pushed. Uh, This man's agenda has very little to do with winning. I can see his prime agenda is to teach uh, these kids how to be a team, how to get along together, how to play well, 
uh, how to do one's best without striving too hard to to it's to want to win, but it's okay when you don't win. Whenever I see someone play their best on the on the field, even if the other team scores a goal, but if the uh, say the what do you call that person who blocks the goalie? <laughs> I'm really good at sports, you can tell, uh, which is why my coach didn't really appreciate me in high school. Uh, whenever the goalie would even allow a goal, if he saw that she played right, he would say, nice try. And over and over again, I kept hearing him say, nice try, nice move. He doesn't say one negative thing the whole game. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that that kind of transformation <laughs> could happen <laughs> since I was in school. Uh, and I started to think about our inner coach when I was watching him. And if you listen to your inner coach, uh, does your inner coach sound like that? Nice try, you know. <laughs> when you go to sleep at night, good job, nice try. <laughs> when you go for seconds at the dinner, nice try. <laughs> Listen to your own coach, and is it a critic, or is it a coach? And so often, when we listen to our own um, mind, it can be so cruel. It's like when we talk about cruelty, which is the opposite of compassion, we often forget to look at our own minds. I mean, we can think about cruelty in this world uh, in many ways which it's quite clear in very general ways. But we often don't take a look at the way we treat ourselves. And a lot of people on retreat will start to get a sense of how cruel that critic is. And it's so important to start being able to get some kindness, compassion, rather than that cruelty. Of course, we can start to learn to see these kind of thoughts when we're mindful enough as just thoughts. But we can also, when we're starting to get drawn into them and believing them, shift to caring about the pain. You know, just stepping out of the whole thing and just having compassion for ourselves that we could have learned to develop such a critic rather than that kind of coach. One of the aspects of the practice at this point in the retreat is often feeling like we're less mindful than ever. And actually, we're more mindful than ever. We're more mindful of how much we get lost in thought. And it amazes me over and over how, in terms of how we think about freedom, that we don't usually get the sense that We have to get rid of our eyes to be free. And we don't tend to think that we have to cut off our ear to be free. You know, so we we really do start to get the sense that the eye sees. And it's becoming mindful of seeing that brings the freedom. And that the ear hears 
and that it's becoming mindful of hearing that leads to freedom. But when it comes to thinking, we get so caught in that we have to get rid of thinking to be free. And so whenever we notice that we've gotten lost in one of our favorite tapes, again, one of those loops of obsessive thinking, when we come back, listen to how you treat yourself. And usually a a kind, even a remotely kind thought is often, I'm still getting caught in this. You know, what a failure. I can't believe it. I'm still getting caught in that. I'm still. Whenever I hear that word still, (laughs) as those of you who know who work with me, I tend to point it out. You know, what is that when we use that word still? It usually means we're not free. We think that somehow we're going to get rid of it. So really try to examine how you relate to thinking. Because at this point, whether it's subtle or not, when we come back from thinking, you have an opportunity at this point in the retreat to really look at the judgment and to see if you can appreciate that you've been lost, you know, that you've come back, actually that you've been, appreciate that you've woken up rather than getting caught in judgment about being lost. This leads to really getting a sense of the kind of disappointment that can come up on retreat when we have this idea that freedom is getting rid of things, like getting rid of thinking. And it, it's, a, it's an idea that really needs to be inquired into. So if you have this idea that you should be thinking less at this point, good luck. You know, hopefully you'll get a sense of how much we do think. We see. <laughs> we see a lot. We see whether the eyes are closed or open, we're seeing. We're hearing You know, even if you're asleep, if there's a loud noise, you'll wake up. You see, that has nothing to do with freedom. And the mind door thinks. So if you think of the thinking as an organ, I think you'll have less worries with, you know, this difficulty of trying to get rid of thinking. And then it's also important to work with the disappointment. If you do get caught in it, then to see if you can... Be mindful of disappointment and see that as also an impermanent mental state that's reacting to a wrong view of practice. In regard to getting rid of things, uh, there's a, a quotation from the Buddha that I wanted to read in regard to physical pain. And this is in regard to chronic physical pain. So the Buddha is describing if one experiences any sensation, whether it's pleasant, painful, or indifferent, one realizes clearly that it's impermanent, ought not to be cherished, ought not to be enjoyed. And then afterwards he starts to say, if one experiences a sensation terminable with the body, extreme pain that shall last as long as the body endures, one realizes clearly in this way I am experiencing a painful sensation terminable with the body. If one experiences a sensation terminable 
with life, extreme pain that shall last as long as life endures, one realizes clearly in this way, I am experiencing a sensation terminable with life. So one realizes clearly that after the expiration of life, in consequence of the dissolution of the body, all sensations thus and cherished shall thereby be entirely extinguished. Just as the flame in a lamp burning independence on wick and oil, when that wick and oil is exhausted and no other fuel is given to it, that flame, through lack of fuel, comes to be extinguished. Do you ever have a sense with any pain in your body that it might last a lifetime and that that's okay? That that's what the Buddha is talking about. There can be karmically pains in the body that can last a lifetime. And do we have a sense that freedom is getting rid of it or is freedom coming to not be attached? and to understand. And it's not that we don't do the best to have compassion and care for the body, but there's also on a deep level so little that we can really control. And and this is, the practice comes fundamentally to this kind of motivation. Now what are we practicing for? Are we practicing for liberation, for freedom, or do we practice for getting rid of something? in the body or mind. And this, this comes up so much in relationship to different karmic knots that we have. So maybe we don't have a chronic pain in the body, but maybe fear is something that really is difficult for us. Maybe we're a fear type. You know, so usually at this point in the retreat, if one's a fear type, um, hopefully you'll start to get a sense of humor with the amount of fear that will come up. Because if you start to surrender and let go of control, fear will come up. It'll become more visible. If you're more of a greedy type, the wanting mind is going to become more visible. Uh, We get that sense, oh no, you know, this is ruining my retreat. These planning thoughts. If one is a fear type, the planning thoughts will come up usually big time. And in the beginning of the retreat, the planning thoughts might have a lot to do with out in the world. But as you get here longer and longer, IMS is our world, right? I mean, it it just becomes, the tiniest little things become magnified because this is our world, and that world is kind of distant. You know, it exists, but um, it's more far away. The planning might take the form For me, on long retreats here initially, the fear would take the form of things that had nothing to do with anything. And I would call them fear attack number 2,222. And I could see that I was just putting the fear on anything. It could glom onto anything. It was extraordinary. And one retreat that glommed onto what time I would bring my laundry down. Now, can you believe it? I mean, I would have unbelievable fear attacks about what time to bring my laundry down to the laundry place. Um, now, and I would sit there going, Michelle, you know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> just bring your laundry down at five o'clock and forget it. But no, you know, it would be just keep coming up and coming up and coming up. And oh, it was so painful. I can't tell you. Because I was trying to be rational with it. And fear isn't usually very rational. And this is what's so hard for us, is that if you're trying to talk yourself out of fear, it's a good sign that you're not accepting it. And if we're getting caught in thoughts about it, it's really that because we can't get to that place of mindfulness, of just allowing the experience of the fear to come and go by itself. Uh, And it becomes so fascinating to me where the planning will start to take shape, because it's not like I was planning something that seems so important in my outer life. In fact, you know, it had this ridiculous quality to it. It had, it had, um, it had an avoidance aspect to it. It was like I was trying to plan when I could get the longest chunk of time to sit without an interruption. You know, so there was an avoidance of unpleasantness underneath it, but it was very hard for me to see that. So if you look closely at a lot of the Fear, you know, I I have the humor myself of calling them fear attacks because it helps me to wake up to what's happening. Uh, And they happened enough so that I would label it 2,222,000, just to get that sense of fun or play, that it's okay. So slowly I started to get that sense that I wasn't here in retreat to get rid of fear. But it was my opportunity to learn how to work with it. So instead of having that resistance to it, because if I was a good yogi, fear shouldn't come up. You know, if I was getting more free, fear shouldn't come up to, wow, as I'm starting to let go of control and really be in the present moment, the planning started to get more intense. I was starting to allow the fear to become more visible. As I started to get mindful of it, it started to become more visible. It's like, oh, you want to see fear? <laughs> you want to you know, know what fear really is? Okay, I'll show you a little more. It's like my system started to trust me, that I would know when to back off from it, when to go into it. And so if we have the motivation with anything, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, that stays around for a while, meaning that at 48, almost, for me, there are still, still things I'm working with. Uh, does that mean that something's wrong or that I have more practice to do, to learn how to work with it? If we get thought caught by any thought whatsoever, uh, we're still not free of that particular thought pattern. That means we still have practice to do with learning what that is, of understanding how to experience it with mindfulness, not to get rid of it. We might have the thought, I still haven't understood anatta yet. I still have this knee pain. I still get caught in fantasy. Look for those kind of thoughts, and they cause us so much suffering. A 
holding on to any view of how the practice should be is such dukkha. You know, and I've seen as I've gone along in practice how, you know, it'll feel like I understand something and the practice will go a certain way and it, then I'll think, oh, that's how the practice should be. And then the next year or two it'll go along and I'll get a, a sense of how the practice should be and then my, my mind will glom on to, oh, that's how the practice should be. Anytime we think that the practice should be any particular way, it's such suffering. We don't have a clue where we are. And it's so wonderful not to know, you know, to, to, the, to feel like we have to figure things out in that way and know that knowing is so painful and the letting go and not knowing is so free. I think about sometimes the beauty of the gold leaves that are still left, the sugar, the sweet sugar maple leaves on the trees. And sometimes after a cold night, you know, these cold frosts, if you go outside, you can hear the sound of the stem on the branch let go. It makes a kind of very soft, you know, it's, it's, if you're quiet, you can hear it. And I think of letting go or letting be of whatever's happening, whether it's thinking or fear, you know, or whatever, attachment, when we can just let it be and experience it, it has that sense of like a leaf dropping from a tree. It's a, su- it's a surrender. It's a wise surrender when the mindfulness is present. When we really understand the phrase, my duty as a mortal is to love and to say goodbye, we see that we can treat each experience equally. So we'll treat a beautiful sunset the same as a dull mind. Or we'll treat the wanting mind the same as moments of metta or moments of sleepiness, the same as moments of peace. Experience is changing. If we accept change, there's more trust. When we don't accept change, there's more fear. So no matter how long we've been practicing, no matter how old we are, uh, whenever we get lost in thinking, it's very important to notice the relationship to getting lost and starting again. So much of this practice is starting again. If you can imagine how many times you've gotten lost in thinking today. You know, not even difficult mind states, but just getting lost in the thought and starting again. You'll get a sense of what this practice is about. It's just starting again and starting again. And there's a great surrender in that and such a great joy. It doesn't matter if we're on retreat or off retreat. Uh, It doesn't matter what we're doing. It all comes down to what our relationship is when we come back from being lost. Is there kindness? Is there gratefulness? Is there appreciation? Can we let that moment touch us and let it be all we need to know?
the Buddha's disciple Sariputta described four floods in our mortal existence, the flood of sensuality, the flood of will to be, the flood of views, and the flood of ignorance. And the Buddha is one who teaches us how to cross over these floods. Sariputta said of the Buddha, he showed a way for the crossing over of these floods. And we who have been shown the ambrosia of deathlessness stand unshakable, seeing the truth. <clears throat> the Buddha described the practice um, as a raft the parable of the raft. He said, I will teach you the Dhamma, the parable of the raft, for crossing over, not for retaining. Listen to it. Pay careful attention. As a person going along a highway might see a great stretch of water on his side dangerous and frightening, the further bank secure, not frightening. But if there were no boat for crossing by it or a bridge across for going from this side to the beyond, it might occur to this person, suppose that I, collecting grass, sticks, branches, and leaves, and tying them into a raft, depending on that raft and striving with hands and feet, should cross over safely to the beyond. This might then occur to this person when he does so. Depending on this raft and striving with hands and feet, I have crossed over safely to the beyond. Suppose now that putting this raft on my head or my shoulder, I should proceed as I desire. What do you think if one does this, if it, one is going, doing what should be done with a raft? What should a person do with a raft, the Buddha said. Suppose now that I beach this raft on dry ground or submerge it and proceed as I desire. In doing this, that person would be doing what should be done with the raft. Even so, in the simile of the raft taught by me for crossing over, not for retaining, you, by understanding the simile, should get rid even of right mental objects, all the more of wrong ones. So what is the raft for us on this retreat? It's really important to see that the practices that we do are a raft. You know, they're not to be get got attached to in any way, but to see them as a skillful means. So for example, when the, the attention is really scattered, and we're, and we're noticing that we're coming back from being lost in thought, uh, and there's not much ability to see clearly. Surely, skillful means would be to try to anchor the attention and just see if we can be with one breath at a time and start to still the attention, you know, so that the skillful means is just to bring about some um, tranquility or calmness in the, the storm of getting so spaced out and lost at sea. 
And it's the same with walking meditation. <clears throat> it can be really helpful just to see if you can just take one step at a time. Uh, and we, we don't have to think that if we're mon- one month into the course, that somehow we should be somehow getting over that instruction. You know, that we should advance beyond that at times. Uh, the practice is so simple, and a lot of the practice is just being that simple. Some of the greatest uh, practitioners that I've met have that simplicity of just having developed just rising, falling, sitting. Rising, falling, sitting. Rising, falling, sitting. You know, it's just, this is how to be here. Very quietly, purely. And this doesn't mean that we can't use the breath as a mindfulness object. We can use it as a concentration object. But we can also learn everything through noticing a breath. We don't have to go out to a lot of other objects of, my, of attention. If you feel pulled in deeply with the breath or with the breath and touch points, this doesn't mean that you're supposed to let go and just be with whatever comes to your attention. You can learn everything in the practice by being that contained and self-contained. There are other times when that won't be skillful means. There'll be other times when just um, letting whatever happens at the six sense doors appear. Or we might be more aware of the knowing of what's happening rather than the objects so clearly. How the attention can get drawn into many different ways, uh, but they're just a raft. It's important not to get caught in, well, this is how it should be, this is how I should practice, or this is how I should practice. Mostly what you learn over time is what works for you, what will steady the attention, what will bring spaciousness. I remember when I first started to sit with Upandita, Sayada Upandita. Uh, and he kept me with the rising and falling movement, it seemed forever, without giving me another instruction. You know, and he might have added a touch point here and there, but at sometimes I would have such a sense that I was failing. You know, that he didn't give me more, more, or more. And over time, I started to have such an appreciation how slowly (laughs) he added instructions. I mean, it was so slow. It was mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. I would interpret that to mean that somehow I wasn't doing well, instead of realizing that it was plenty. It was plenty to be given if I was using it well. And in some ways, um, over later years of working with him, when he would give a new instruction, he'd have this little mischievous gleam in his eye, and he'd say, digest this. And I knew that digesting it meant let go of any change in this instruction for a couple of years, you know. I mean, it was just like, digest it meant, you know, we were into this one forever, you know. It was just, just go with it. Don't try to think of another way. Uh, it was such a, a deep surrender in a way, that, but it was also seeing that any instruction could lead you to full enlightenment if, it's, if you follow it. 
with that kind of purity of heart. So you can be mindful of the breath uh, and, and know everything, just like that breeze that touched this woman's cheek and told her all that she needed to know. It's the quality of the attention that's so important. There's also a kind of trust in, and patience in this process where we see that there are times when it's really important to bring more concentration, anchoring, and other times to be more with our moment-to-moment experience. That you learn over time. And please don't be afraid to make mistakes. It's like, what can a mistake be here? It's so interesting how we can be afraid of taking risks here. Uh, you know, do we go to bed at night because we're afraid of being sleepy the next day? You know, just, just to look at that. Or, you know, do we have something at tea time to eat because we're afraid we'll be hungry the next day? Just to look at those little things. It's not, again, to judge them as much as to see um, the skillful means what works for us, what doesn't work for us. Uh, meaning, what helps us to, de- to develop more wisdom and compassion? And where do we start losing it more and more? We'll know that over time, if we have patience. The Pali word for bowing is anjali, and it means, sometimes it will mean a gesture of reverence. Uh, You can see that there are different ways that people bow. It's also quite nice to see the different range of bowing in the West. In, In Burma, And I think mostly in Asia, when people uh, bow on the ground three times, uh, it means that they're taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. That's a very traditional way to bow. There was a time in my practice where I was sitting, and I felt that I had a very deep understanding. After that experience, I just naturally put my head on the ground uh, to bow. It was like a, a gesture of gratitude and surrender that just happened. But I started to see that that practice of bowing in that way evolved out of that deep surrender and gratitude. Uh, it's, it's a very um, powerful thing to have one's body make a full offering. So another, another definition of anjali, or bowing, is making a full offering of our body and mind. And I'm not sharing this in any way to bring about more people getting on the ground and bowing and, uh, at all. It's to just start to get an understanding of what's, what's underneath it, what's behind it, and to find our ways of bowing. So it might not be that you make any gesture that's visible, but what's important is the sense of respect, reverence, gratitude.
gratitude, uh, and ultimately seeing that the preciousness of our human birth is really getting that we're here to make an offering. You know, we're using our body and mind. It's an offering to develop wisdom and compassion. The full, the full offering of one's body and mind can be seen as a total surrender. And I've seen over the years where early in my bowing life, um, I couldn't relate to it at all. You know, I just wouldn't do it, and <laughs> I didn't relate to it. And then I started bowing to the flowers on the altar because flowers are such an important part of my life. And slowly I started to, especially over the years of working with Sayada Upandita, where we bowed so much, I started to really love putting my head on the ground, on the earth, that, that gratitude uh, for the support of Mother Earth. And then slowly I started to feel, as I was teaching and bowing a lot, you can imagine that teaching there's a lot of bowing in my life. I'd see that I would bow when I was sleepy, when I was um, aversive, when I was quiet, when I was peaceful. That over and over as the years have gone by, I've bowed in pra- practically every mind state and body condition possible. Uh, and it reinforces for me that sense of deep surrender to just what is. That it doesn't matter what the experience is that's happening. It's the mindfulness of the experience that's so important. And it's that shift from uh, getting caught in the experience to receiving the teaching of the experience through mindfulness, which brings about wisdom and compassion, which hopefully is what we're doing here on this planet this lifetime. When I was in Burma this time, I was very fortunate for another year to inherit the kuti, or cottage, that was built for Stephen. It looks out over the Irrawaddy River in probably the most um, beautiful way. It's like it's an elevation on the hill, in the Sagain Hills, that we can see uh, the boats that come by the Irrawaddy from a beautiful perspective. So early in the morning at sunrise, the river, the Irrawaddy River, at this time of year when I've been there, is still. I know it must be moving because when I go down and actually get to the river, I can see that it moves. But from this perspective on the hill in the early morning, it looks completely still. And when a boat comes through, and they don't come through every second on the Irrawaddy, it's like every once in a while, a very unusual looking boat, because their boats are so ancient, uh, comes by. It leaves this perfect wake, and in the stillness of water, the power of the wake that it leaves is so visible, so tangible. And day after day, morning after morning, I would watch these um, perfect wakes 
in the still water go by, very peaceful. And I started to see how we leave awake, each of us, each moment in whatever we do, so that when we're aversive, we leave awake of aversion. It's like that trail goes out forever. And when we have a wake of mindfulness, you can smell it. You know when people come by, <laughs> and it's like it's contagious. You know, when there's a, a person that's being mindful, if we're not aversive, that we're not mindful. <laughs> we want to be mindful. <laughs> you know, if we can kind of just not get too jealous and accept that, be, you know, be touched by that quality of awareness. Often it settles us. It's like because that wake of mindfulness or metta is so powerful, it's tangible. You can feel it, experience it. So there's a wake of greediness. There's a wake of neediness. There's a wake of loneliness. There's a wake of delusion. Uh, And what are we doing with our precious life? Do we want to leave a wake of metta, a wake of mindfulness? A wake of peace. It's a good question. What are we using our precious birth for? So let's sit for a minute. May we use this precious gift of our human birth wisely and compassionately this lifetime. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.